2 Kings 5 is the story of an unlikely convert. It is the story of an unlikely convert. Verse 1, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor. Syria was Israel's enemy. And interestingly enough here, the narrator introduces the Syrian, this enemy, with high praise. Introduces him with high praise. He's a great man, high valor, mighty man, mighty man of favor. A mighty man of favor because, the text says, by him Yahweh had given victory to Syria. This enemy of the Lord is praised by Israel because the Lord had given him victory. He's praising this man for God's providence. God's providence caused him to vanquish his foes. Now, who are the vanquished? The text doesn't say. But we know the last battle that we saw Syria in was at Ramoth, Gilead, where he defeated the Israelites. He defeated the Israelites. This is the story of an unlikely convert. It's the enemy. And as a story of the unlikely convert, it begins with God's sovereignty over the nations. You see, last chapter, in chapter 4, we saw God's sovereign grace over individual Israelites. God redeemed, God rescued, and God resurrected his people. That is the gospel according to Yahweh. He loves his people. He loves the church. Chapter 5 is about God's sovereign grace over an outsider. Matter of fact, the enemy of God. This too is the gospel according to Yahweh. You see, we are all unlikely converts. For while we were enemies... Christ died for the ungodly. Christianity is a religion for the unlikely. It is a religion for the unlikely, a religion for the loveless. We are loved and we find love and grace. Christianity is a religion of grace, love for the loveless, grace for the graceless, salvation for the lost. It's a perfect religion for you. It's perfect religion for me. Redemptive history is God so loved the world. And that's our text this morning. God so loved the world. The text says, this enemy of the Lord, blessed by the Lord, but he was a leper. He was a leper. There's his misery. Leprosy. Leprosy in the Bible is often a curse. A curse by God for covenant breakers. And the law for leprosy, the law for leprosy, Torah states that the leper must live alone. And he must live outside the camp of God. And that's really a picture of the Syrian. He is an outsider. Unlikely in every way. He's the enemy. He's cursed. He's outside the camp of God. Without God, Without hope in the world. 
Verse 2, now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. See, he's still the enemy of God, carrying off Israel's children. And she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He could cure him of his leprosy. He could cure him of this leprosy. If only, right? If only this enemy of God one who has defeated and enslaved God's people. He was the enemy of God, and as we will see in the story, he ends up the protagonist of the story. How can this be? How can the enemy of God end up the protagonist? Because it's the gospel according to, to Yahweh. And it's the story of an unlikely convert. He needed... God's provision. And God's provision was inside Israel. Problem is, Naaman is outside of Israel. He was without a prophet, without hope in the world. But he heard the good news. He heard the good news of salvation, and he acted upon it. Verse 4, so Naaman went and told his Lord, thus and so spoke this girl from the land of Israel. Hey, there's salvation in Israel. If I can go, and the king of Syria said, go. I'll send a letter. Get my blessing. Everyone here believes the enemy. These outsiders are all in belief. They all believe this little girl. Naaman believed in the prophet, and the king believed it was worth a shot. So he sends him, go. I'll send a, I'll send a letter. I'll send with you all this, this money and clothing. There's a lot of faith in the beginning of this chapter. In these verses, there's a lot of faith, and it's all outsiders. While the insiders, as we will see in the text, the insiders, God's people, are the ones without faith in the story. The outsiders have faith, but the insiders, faithless. Which is a sad theme of scripture, by the way. The theme Christ knew all too well. True faith is a certain knowledge and a hearty trust. True faith is a certain knowledge and a hearty trust. These outsiders had a certain knowledge. They had a certain knowledge by which they held as true all that the Lord revealed to them through this little girl. And they had a hearty trust. They acted upon it. Matter of fact, they acted, they, they risked their own lives, actually, to go into the enemy's camp for salvation. They knew and they acted upon it. They had assurance. They had trust. Israel's king had a certain knowledge, too, the text says. It says they brought the letter to the king. The king read it. And he responded, Israel's king. And when king of Israel, that's Jehoram, Jehoram, remember he's not named anymore because of his sin. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, am I God to kill and to make alive? Can I kill and make alive? They've sent this guy here to test me. They sent this guy here to quarrel. They want to fight. Israel's king had a certain knowledge. He believed God alone kills. And God alone makes alive. That's good theology. That's good theology. God alone kills. God alone makes alive. Good theology. He had head knowledge. But it had no heart. You see, the king of Israel believed Baal was the God of life. He was an insider who put his hope in a God outside of Israel. He was an insider who had inside knowledge. 
he saw over and over again Elisha prove that Yahweh alone makes life and get, takes life. He's seen God's sovereignty over and over again, yet fails to trust in the Lord. He's an insider with all the marks of being inside. He's in the land, visibly in God's land, physically marked with circumcision, physically marked with God's grace, in every way an outsider, or excuse me, in every way an insider. Yet his heart was far from the Lord. He was inside, but truly an outsider. He was no true insider for his heart was uncircumcised, but an outsider in this story, an outsider outside of the land, outside the people of God, without circumcision, without Moses, without the law, was a true insider. He didn't live in the land, but as we will see, he belonged to a better country that is a heavenly one. He was a member of the true Israel of God. He was a true Israelite, as we, as we will see. You see, you can have all the outward signs of membership in the kingdom of God. You can have all the outward signs. But if you're not born again, you cannot truly see the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And we belong to true Israel by faith alone. By faith alone, we are truly Israel. You see, it is those of faith who are the children of Abraham. That's the gospel according to Yahweh in Galatians 3. If you have your Bibles, turn with me for a moment to Galatians 3. It's a good moment to look at Galatians 3 here to prove the point. Galatians chapter 3, looking at verses 26 and following. Galatians 3, 26 and following. Galatians 3.26, Paul writes, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. He's talking to Gentiles. You are all sons of God, children of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ to put on Christ. There's the visible outward expression of the people of God. And then inwardly, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Promise makes God's people. Not politics, not nationhood, not visible. The faith is not visible. Here's where Christians get confused. They see the Bible. They see that it has two parts, the Old and the New Testament. It confuses Christians all the time. They're like, oh, Old and New Testament. Old God, wrath, smite. Likes to smite, right? We've been reading smiting. It's, it's been nothing but smiting. <laughs> There's even smiting in this text. Oh, that's Yahweh. He's the smiter. New Testament, Jesus, love. Rainbows and unicorns, New Testament. <laughs> fire and brimstone Old Testament two gods oh two peoples by the way Old Testament people these Jewish people New Testament these Gentile people two separate peoples of God wrong one book two chapters first chapter promise 
Second chapter, fulfillment. One hope, one God, one people. One people of God. And so Paul says, not all those in Israel are Israel. But we are the Israel of God, as Paul calls us. He calls us the Israel of God. Or as Peter calls us, a chosen race. A holy nation. Terms used in the Old Testament for Gentiles. A holy nation. Or as history calls us, Christians. One people of God. Verse 8. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? This is basically, Elisha is basically asking the king of Israel what Jesus often asked his disciples. Why is your faith so little? Why are you afraid? Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me. And he'll know that there's a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with the horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. Now the horses and chariots at Elisha's door, this is where we see Naaman's faith. He's acting on the knowledge that he had. He didn't rightly know God yet. He didn't truly know God. He didn't rightly know God. He's an outsider. So he expected prophets to give personal and immediate attention to great men. So he comes showing up. He's a great man. And so this prophet will come out, wave his little hand, do his little ditty, his act, and then the great man will... He'll bless the great man, and the great man will give him all this stuff. And so Elisha responds accordingly. And what we see with Elisha, what happens with Elisha in this text is what we call evangelism. He's evangelizing Naaman. You see, Naaman expected healing on the spot, so Elisha sends him elsewhere. Naaman expected the prophet to come out and heal him and so he sends him an assistant. He sends an intern. And it worked. He becomes upset, the text says. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. You see, in paganism, the spark of divinity is inside the man. Each and every man, especially prophets, they have a greater spark of the divinity. You see, in paganism, the power of God is in the thing. In paganism, the power of God is in the thing. It's in the person. In paganism, the deity actually answers to the prophet. This was Israel's idolatry. It was Israel's idolatry when they took the Ark of the Covenant to battle. They thought they would win because they, would, they took the ark because they thought the power was in the ark. This is Israel's idolatry when they worshiped the pillars of stone in Ashtaroth. They believed that Yahweh was the stones. And so the deity actually answers to the prophet. And the prophet in paganism is really the one in control. The prophet is the one who calls God down. The prophet is the one who uses God. He is the one who works. He's the real power. He's the real power. You kiss his ring and all. Not me, but some do. 
So Elisha chose to be absent because the power of God is not in the thing. He chose to be absent because the power of God is in the promise. He promised. It's in the word of God always. Elisha spoke the word of God and that's what would cleanse. That's what would heal. For example, the Bible says baptism saves and we believe it. Why do you believe baptism saves? Because the Bible says so. But we're not pagans. We don't believe that Jesus is the water. We don't believe there's power in H2O. We don't look for God's presence in the water, but we do look for him to work through it. Through matter, God matter-of-factly washes us clean by the blood and spirit of Christ because he said so. God is present in action through his means. And the action is the word of God proclaimed in, with, and under the word, under the water, with the water, through the water. And so you come to church because God is here working through his work. And his word is his work. And he works through his means. He works his salvation through and through and through his word. But Naaman misunderstood this. He misunderstood the command. He thought the prophet simply called for a ritual cleansing in which he would be cleansed spiritually, supposedly, right? But not truly. He wanted true healing. He didn't want to just be ritually cleaned. He wanted to be clean of his leprosy. And his, ser- his servants helped his misguided interpretation. He's like, are our rivers better? But his servants, verse 13, said, come near and said to him, my father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said, wash and be clean? He didn't simply say, wash and be clean. He said, your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. It's a different kind of cleansing. And he heard his servants rightly. He finally heard the word rightly and he washed and he was healed. Healed, Verse 14. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word. Right? The word. The word did it. According to the word of the man of God and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child and he was clean. The word of the man of God cleansed his flesh. God's working is his wording, and he worded this man clean. He worded this man's flesh restored, and more importantly, he worded his heart clean. Made it so. Then he returned to the man of God and all his company. He came and stood before him and said, Behold, I know that there is now... That there is, excuse me, I behold that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. There is no God. You see, he comes to the man not on horses and chariots. He comes without the pomp. Now he comes with faith, trust. I know now that there is no other God but Yahweh. You see, the evangelism worked. He now knew God. Yahweh wasn't a metaphor for prophetic powers. Yahweh's a person. A deliverer, the one who delivers from all our sins and misery. The power was not in Elisha, 
He was absent. It was not in the river. It was muddy. It was God's word. It's God's word. It was God. But he tries to gift Elisha. Here, take these gifts. And Elisha's like, no, I will take no gifts. This is Elisha doing discipleship. He just converted through his evangelism efforts. And now he disciples. Elisha wanted to make clear that salvation is of the Lord alone. And Elisha ministered the word. That's all he did. He was nothing. I was nothing. I'm a servant of the word. The word did all the work. Yahweh was the deliverer. So the praise and glory should go to Yahweh alone. Verse 17, the name had said, if not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. Can I have some of Yahweh's place? I'll take some of Yahweh's place back home with me so I can worship rightly. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offerings or sacrifice to any God but the Lord. Amen. He'll give God worship alone. This is the work of evangelism and discipleship. He will give God the glory alone. But then in verse 18, it says, In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon. When I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He knows Rimmon's an idol. But he still bow. He's still going to bow at the temple in his official duty as a general. So he asked for mercy. Give me mercy. And interestingly enough, Elisha said to him in verse 9, go in peace. He refused idolatry in his heart, but he would still give a place for it in his office. And Elisha allowed it. What is this? It's the story of an unlikely convert. Therefore, it's the Reformation. The Reformation is a slow process. It takes time. Christian ethics, along with our Christian doctrines, take time to become ours. Martin Luther, the great reformer, understood the wisdom of patience when the Reformation was going on, and he counseled many of the Reformed ministers to slow down. The Reformed ministers in Germany were going too quickly in the right direction. Going in the right direction, but too quickly. So Martin Luther said, ho, 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 hold, hold your horses. Reformation takes time. Unlikely converts need time to live a new life of grace and faith. They need time to know that salvation is of the Lord completely. Right, everyone's born an Arminian, but it takes time and discipleship to become a Calvinist. It takes time to understand the doctrines of grace. If you rush the doctrines of grace upon a people, if you're careless and impatient with the doctrines of grace, you can cause a new legalism. With the doctrines of grace, it can become a new law. Religion takes time, proper religion. It takes time for new converts to realize that religion is not simply a feeling, but it's a matter of the mind and the heart. And we must fill our minds with Christ and his doctrines. 
takes time for new converts to realize that religion is ancient and that new is actually bad in religion. <laughs> new is bad. It's the faith once and for all delivered. It takes time to become a true Catholic, but you must. It takes time to realize I'm not talking about Rome. They're not Catholic enough. They believe God is in the thing. <laughs> Paganism. It takes time for Christians to realize that God is holy, holy, holy. That church is a means of grace where we come with reverence and awe and we're sanctified by the living, preaching word. It takes time to realize the church is not a, play, not a concert. It's not a rock concert or worse, a pop concert, a place for therapy, but a place of grace, reverence, all. Move too quickly. Move too quickly through the Reformation and the church will begin serving God out of servile fear. They'll hate it. They'll spit out the goodness rather than embracing it with thanksgiving. And Elisha knew this. Elisha knew that Naaman would need time to learn to flee from idolatry. Because that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Flee idolatry. But Elisha said, go in peace. Go do your idolatry. <laughs> I know your heart's not in it. We have to allow unlikely converts time to reform. We have to give them freedom for where they are at. Discipleship takes a process. And so where the Reformation is taking root, we have to be patient. We have to allow for freedom. We have to trust the word to complete its good work in all of our lives. And so I want you to remember that when you see consistory being patient with wayward Christians in our church. Don't judge us <laughs> for being patient and gentle we don't want to break a bruised reed. We don't want to quench a burning wick, a faintly burning wick. We must disciple unlikely converts with love and patience. But on the flip side, we don't take God's long suffering for granted. God is still holy, holy, and the text reminds us with that, with verse 19. He said to him, he said to Elisha, go in peace. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, now we're introduced to another character, an insider. Gehiza, the servant of Elisha, the man of God. He's a servant of the man of God. He's an insider. He said, see, my master has spared Naaman, the Syrian, and not accepting from his hand what he brought. As, the, as Yahweh lives, he calls on the Lord. Here's his piety. As Yahweh lives, I will use God to get something for myself. As Yahweh lives, I will use God. That's basically what he said. Takes the name of the Lord in vain. And then he takes piety and uses piety. He, he runs and finds Naaman. Naaman's like, oh, is everything all right? Yeah, everything's all right. But hey, uh, we need to help two guys. We, just, we got these two, two Christians that are hurting. We need you to give us a little bit of that money you got. And we're going to help these Christians. It's just for these Christians. You don't have to give us all. Just give us a little bit to help these, these needy Christians. And Naaman as a Christian is like, yes, here, take half. He used God. He used piety. He had a certain knowledge. He pledged an oath to the one true God. He says, as Yahweh lives, certain knowledge, as Yahweh lives. He, he proclaims the right God. As Yahweh lives, I will run. I will run in the name of Yahweh. Head knowledge. But he used it for profit. He used God. He used God's people. 
He went in afterwards, verse 25, after he stole in the name of religion. He went in and stood before his master, and Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? Now's the time for repentance. When a prophet asks you after you sin, what have you been doing? You fall on your knees. But he just said, your servant went nowhere. We call this dead faith, by the way. That's what James calls it. Dead faith. Dead faith knows things about God, has a head knowledge, has all the outward visible signs of religion, uses it, can use it quite well, sadly. That's the story of the church. Using God for money and financial gain. Sadly, that's Christianity in America. But it's a dead church for dead people who have a dead faith. Dead faith looks to religion for our best life now. Dead faith looks to religion for physical, outward blessings, health, wealth, whatever else they're doing out there today. I don't keep up anymore. It's too sad. It's too depressing. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead, says James. This man knew God, but he didn't trust God. That's dead faith. So he said to him, did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Elisha says, you broke my heart. Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? It's never time to use God for money and financial gain. Dead faith seeks church for temporal gain. Dead church is the one that looks most alive by worldly standards. In a true church, disciplines faithless insiders. Verse 27, therefore the leprosy of Naaman, he says, shall cling to you. He spoke another word. He spoke a word of grace to the outsider. Now he speaks law and condemnation to the insider. Therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. So he went away from his presence a leper like snow. Naaman, an unlikely convert, truly believed. And he left Elisha in peace. Even though he's about to go commit idolatry officially. Through the motions of idolatry, go in peace. Because on the inside, he was a true insider. Gehiza, an outwardly looking insider, left white as snow. Because idolatry was in his heart. He didn't truly belong to the Lord. What's the conclusion of the story? Love God and do whatever you want. Does that make you cringe when I say that? Love God and do whatever you want? The outsider hears that and they really only hear do whatever you want. The legalist hears it and he cringes because he's yoked to the law. Do whatever you want. No, God forbid. But the true insider, the unlikely convert, that statement is music to our ears. It's music to our ears. The true insider, it is music to our ears for we get to love God. Love God. I get to love God. 
I get to love God. We get to love God who first loved us. I get to love God because he first loved me, who chose me before the foundation of the earth. I get to love God who so loved the world that he gave his only son. I get to love Christ who has redeemed me from the wrath of God. I get to love Christ who has freed me from the law's condemnation. So we no longer hear the threats of the law and the threats when we hear do whatever you want. That doesn't threaten us. When we sin, what do we hear? There's no more condemnation. When we struggle with sin, we hear, I will never leave or forsake you. We hear the gospel. Therefore, all we want to do is to live for the Lord. And we get to love God's law. And we want to glorify the Lord. This is true faith. It is a life lived for the gospel. Love is the life of the insider. We hear in the gospel that we outsiders are now insiders, that we by faith are children of Abraham. Sarah is our mother. We are the chosen race. The race is the elect of God. The insider knows God and knows God has loved us forever. That is a true blessing. That God has loved me forever. want to do is love God in return. All we want to do is show our gratitude. That's the Christian life. Thank you, Lord, for loving me. Thank you, Lord, for showing me mercy. Have mercy on me, a sinner. So know the gospel. Trust it. Trust it's for you. Believe it. Rest and do whatever you want. Don't count the costs. It costs Christ everything. Count it joy. Count it joy to love, to suffer, and to even die for Christ. That is the story of an unlikely convert. Amen. Let us pray. At Covenant Reformed Church in Missoula, Montana, we sincerely believe God's Word and faithfully teach it. We invite you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 6 p.m. For more information, please visit MissoulaURC.com. That's MissoulaURC.com.